Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I am your host, CEO, and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. Today's episode, which is recorded on May 25, 2021, we discuss U.S. President Joe Biden's recent climate announcements, the cyber attack on the Colonial Pipeline, and how these affect events affect energy security in the United States and Canada. We're very pleased today to have Ellen Wald, the president of Transversal Consulting, join us from Jacksonville, Florida. Ellen is an expert on energy and geopolitics, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, and the author of Saudi Inc., a book about the history of the Saudi royal family's control over Aramco. Welcome, Ellen. We're so glad to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Let's get right started here. In a recent opinion article for The Hill, you argued that Biden's commitment to, for the United States to cut its emissions by 50% will be harmful to Americans and is unlikely to work. That's a pretty bold statement. Can you give, give us a short overview of why you think this is the case? I agree, by the way. Yeah, and I think that, that it's particularly important, I think, to consider this also in light of um, that this isn't the the only proclamation that's being issued that really p brings to light some of the incredible or, or almost in, insane kind of changes that are being called for here because um, you know shortly after this announcement of um, what America's NDC or nationally determined contribution would be under the Paris Agreement, the um, International Energy Agency came out with basically a, a report detailing this kind of scenario for how the, how the world is going to reach net zero emissions from energy by 2050. And a lot of the things that they say in their report are, are, are mirrored in their incredulity in President Biden's uh, announcement as well. So I think that, that these kind of announcements are almost gaining steam. And um, before they kind of roll through, it's important to really look at what this would actually mean for um, you know, for the people who are are living, for consumers, for for everyday people who are trying to to build lives. So one of the things that I was able to do in this piece was to kind of take what the um, what the the statements in the NDC uh, how they would translate uh, for Americans. So for example, um, one of the things that, that if you look at where we are now in the United States, in order to meet the goals set forth in this, we would need to increase the number of electric vehicles on the road. Right now, it's at 0.3%. It would need to increase to 50%. Uh, wow. It's, it's almost impossible to fathom that. I, so many things we could explore about that. Rare earths, um, infrastructure, charging stations, all of those things. Like I, I, you know, we could spend the next day talking about just those issues. And and not only that, but you've got that means that nearly every new car and every light duty truck sold in the next eight years would have to be electric as opposed to an internal combustion engine. So that basically means that now we've got to stop selling new internal combustion cars and trucks. There aren't even enough electric vehicles being produced to meet that kind of demand if it was there. But forgetting that aside and, and the fact that people don't want to necessarily buy the vehicles, the electric vehicles that are offered, um, we don't have the, the electricity or the power grid sufficient to charge all those vehicles. 
uh, I mean, you would have a, a, a massive collapse of the grid. So it's to me, it's 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 such a far-fetched idea that it almost seems ridiculous to propose it because people will just look at it and be like, oh, that's that's not, you know, that, that's so unrealistic as to be unachievable. Why bother? As opposed to, you know, making a more constructive proposal. So uh, just, and, and I'm ad living here a little bit, but I, you know, I found the IEA's uh, statement, my, uh, like you, it's almost like when Biden agreed to put America back into Paris, it's like Burrall, the head of the IEA, International Energy Agency, said, hey, now we got the big player on side here. Let's really step out the scope. It's almost like, yeah, well, yeah, here we go now. And I, 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 let's, let's talk about the IEA's thing for a minute, because I think it's very important. Um, I consider this a bit of a linchpin in the, in the like this is a, a watershed moment, I think, in, in, in uh, uh, energy security and, and the future of energy globally, um, because a lot of people depend on the IEA's forecasts for how they run out their own scenarios, investors, oil and gas companies, other energy firms. So, you know, would you expand on your thoughts about that a little bit? I, I, I really, I, I really believe that, that, you know, they've, they had a chat. <laughs> and it's shocking because just a few months ago, the, the IEA was out there saying, we're concerned that there's not enough investment in um, new oil and gas fields to meet growing demand. And they were, were talking about how the, the drop in demand from the pandemic was, had basically you know, killed off all so much new investment and that this was a problem. And now they're issuing this report that says, well, actually we need to just stop investing in all new oil and gas fields if we wanna meet these goals. And it's almost like they want us to take to, to divorce these two aspects, and I don't. I don't think that that's possible. I don't. I think that that's that's a naive idea. And I remember him saying, you know, well, this is just one scenario. Okay, it it is one scenario, but this is the scenario that you're out there promoting, and and you're the same people who are who are making these these forecasts about energy demand. I mean, this this report doesn't even match with the IEA's own data. I mean, their their data. If you look at how um, if you look at emissions over the past uh, two decades, so let's say 19, you take their data as like 1990 to 2018, and then you look at the proportion of different types of energy being used in, in the mix, you'll see that the thing that's really made a huge difference in, um, you know, in emissions has been the growth of natural gas as a fuel for generating electricity, because that has increased significantly as a proportion of, of fuel being used, and that's enabled coal to basically remain steady. Uh, and then there's been a decrease in hydro and nuclear, which I would argue is, is not a good idea, but is you know understandable because people want to close nuclear plants, especially after Fukushima, and, and hydro plants are, are difficult to build or not exactly accessible for everyone. But it's really been that growth of natural gas that's enabled us to grow the total amount of energy we're using and you know, not, not have the, the same kind of explosion in, in emissions. And now here they are basically turning, doing a, a total about face on this. And it's, I think it's, it's very surprising and it, it, it makes you wonder, is this 
report a blip? Was it something that is created for some sort of purpose? And now that it served that purpose, they're going to go back to, to what their usual saying? Is it divorced from this? Or is this really, you know, the, the, a new face for the IEA? So going back to the American perspective, I, I found it, I find it odd that, um, and, and I'll try to try not it because it, it is political. I'm surprised that Biden has made a move so much away from oil and gas in the same vein as the IEA did. Let, and let's specifically talk about gas because, you know, the United States has, has made quantum improvements in emissions because of natural gas, as you just stated, replacement of, of aging coal facilities, and just the fact that, you know, you can bring a lot of natural gas on in a short period of time, and it's, its ability to be elastic in the system is giant. I, and not only that, a lot of Biden's own support politically, like states like Pennsylvania, I'm surprised that he, he, he wouldn't look at the, that the U.S. administration doesn't look more at natural gas as, as, as I look at it, like the giant bridge to the future of, of emissions reduction. He just divorced, again, kind of set it aside and continue down this path of, of uh, the renewables that aren't sustainable on their own. And it's surprising, you know, and what was interesting was he did make a slight kind of Veer, it seemed like in slightly in favor of nuclear, which was interesting. He said, "Well, we're going to extend, you know, the life of these these nuclear plants," but that didn't stop, you know, New York from retiring a big nuclear plant. And they say they 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 claim that you know they're going to build all this wind power, but that's not going to take the place of all of that base load. They're going to end up going to gas. New York won't drill in its own state. You can't drill. Uh, you can't frack the the Marcellus in New York. So, you know, Pennsylvania is benefiting because they're going to be the ones sending New York all the natural gas that they need to make up for closing their nuclear plant. So it's really astounding because when you look at, and and you can actually, and the, the, the um, EIA in, in the U.S. has a really great tool that I've been playing with a lot where you can see uh, for every big grid in the, in the U.S., you can see um, basically almost the real-time proportion of what fuels are being used to make up that energy mix. And so it's, it's amazing to see that some, some places are still relying a lot on coal and other places, so much of that has transferred to natural gas. And, and you're absolutely right that it's, it's natural gas that has enabled us to really be able to reduce the big emitter, which is coal. And so it does make you wonder why there's such a hatred, can only be described almost as a hatred for this lower emitting fuel that's cleaner burning that has enabled us to reduce emissions. And if you look at it from a global perspective, which I really think you, you can't look at it just on a country by country basis because all of the, the everything that, that feeds into this says this is a global problem for every, you know, is it really worth forcing, say, Americans to turn to get rid of all of their natural gas heating and shift to electric heat pumps, which don't work so well in cold climates. You know, it's, it's one thing to have an electric heat pump in, you know, a, a temperate kind of more southern climate. It's another thing when, you know, it's New England and it's below, you know, 20 degrees for days on end. And is that, is it worth that push when China is building a new coal plant, you know, every other day, basically. 136. That's a bit of an exaggeration. No, but but there's 136 coal plants financed by China, either in China or around the world under construction today. That is a fact. That is like one every other day. Right. So 
you've t touched on more than touched on you talked about electric vehicles and the exponential gain that are, is required there in usage but i think you, you also mentioned home heating and uh, uh like buildings and things like that i, I think those there, there are opportunities to reduce emissions greatly by better insulation and make up air units in big buildings that are more more sustainable and more efficient um so again how could this pol these policies and policy frameworks be more more realistic for american consumers and you know it, it parallels canada largely yeah i think i think the first step is to recognize the limitations that exist because um you know the ia report relied on the implementation of technologies that we don't have that are you know barely under development that are not commercial at this time so you've got to kind of set those things aside and you, you can't say well we believe that in you know five or ten years there will be a, re a revolution in battery storage there may very well be a revolution in battery storage but you don't know that it's going to happen in, in five to ten years so i think you have to set aside the, the 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 things that don't yet exist and work with what does exist and then you have to you have to look at it and you have to say look we are, unless we drastically reduce our energy consumption, as in, you know, unless we're going to ration energy use, we're going to say, you know, you can only get in your car once a week. Uh, you know, you can't have electricity 24 hours a day. If we are, go we're going to accept that we need to maintain our current Western style lifestyles, or at least a good deal of them. A lot of people haven't traveled and, you know, air travel that much and can possibly see maybe giving that up. But if you are going to accept that people want to be able to get in a car and go somewhere when they want to go somewhere and they want to have electricity 24 hours a day and they want to have heat 24 hours a day and they want to have cooling and they want to have a refrigerator and these kinds of things, then we have to work from there. And we have to implement things that are realistic, the things that are best to reduce our total greenhouse gas emissions, if that's what we're looking at. And I, I believe that, that that would really come from pushing more natural gas and doing it in ways that, you know, we, we flare so much natural gas. That doesn't need to happen. We can build the pipelines to capture that. We can put that into the system. We can export it to places that are coal reliant and don't have natural gas and help them reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. We actually have the capability to do that. And so I think that, that those are the kinds of solutions, while it may not feel like, I think there's a sense of like, if I buy an electric car or I change my water heater, then I feel like I'm contributing to saving the world. When in fact, your contribution really basically means nothing when there are all these coal plants. So I think we have to put aside our feelings about what we think feels good and concentrate on the solutions that would actually make a real difference. And those include, I think, really pushing forward with natural gas, nuclear, hydro. Yes, solar and wind are a part of it, but there's just no way. We would have to cover so much land in order to produce enough energy to compensate from hydrocarbons that it's it's almost infeasible unless you want to ration electricity use. Uh, you know, I, I just don't think that the great founder of democracy and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is going to allow the administ current administration to take away things they already have. And uh, I'll just leave it at that. Like I, yeah. yeah. And I hope not, because I think that, that we should all be invested in improving the lives of everyone in the world. I mean, we have to remember that 
that bringing electricity to places brings people out of poverty. And there are still so many people who are in poverty and who need electricity and need power and need fuel. And I think that we have the, the power and the capability and the knowledge to help them do that in cleaner ways than say we experience that ourselves. And so it's worth it's it's worthless to waste money on something that you don't you don't get a lot of return on it. Put the money where it, it can really make a difference instead of offering massive tax breaks for people to buy overly expensive electric vehicles, because that's just not going to contribute all that much. Well, it's, you're so right. And I, it's, it's amazing that, the, and I read, you know, I read widely. And when it comes to these things, even the, even the um, ESG funds and the future energy funds that are based on renewables, the people that put the money in those funds need rates of return as well. And it's, it's been clearly shown that you can't drive returns very high with renewable uh, energy investment. If the government isn't involved, and th therefore that if tells me then, then it's not efficient uh, economically. And eventually that grinds to, the investment grinds to a halt, it just has to. Um, let's, let's move on, Ellen, and talk about the uh, colonial pipeline and the recent cyber attack. What do you think the longer term effects of this attack will be on energy security, particularly uh, energy infrastructure and how that, you know, the, the, the conjoining of Canadian and U.S. infrastructure is very important, hydro, oil, natural gas, and products pipelines, like let's, we, won't, we, we may get to line five too, but um, what do you think the longer term effects are? Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to energy security, I think it's actually worthless to speak about energy security from just an American perspective, we really need to talk about North American energy security. Uh, read my mail. Yeah, that's that's Canada, the U.S., and Mexico together. That 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 is the core of our energy security, and, and that it's it's not even really worth having a conversation about just American energy security because I don't I don't think it can exist without cooperation because our energy infrastructure is conjoined and it should be and we are stronger for that and we are less secure when we um you know when when we fight about it or when we don't help each other and i think that the us and, and mexico have a different kind of relationship in energy than the us and canada do um i think we can we can kind of talk about just that and, and leave the mexico part out for now but um I do think that the colonial pipeline hack was absolutely a wake up call. And I've definitely seen this for energy companies in, you know, all parts of the ecosystem are saying, look, we need to upgrade our systems, we need to upgrade our security. And um, so I do think that it has, it has definitely woken people up and places that don't have or haven't had as good security are hopefully taking steps to deal with that. But at the same time, it's really revealed how critical pipelines are to our everyday lives. And this particular pipeline was just, you know, in the US, but even the small amount of time that it was down created a, a severe dislocation. A lot of that dislocation was due to people panic buying, but it still revealed the fact that pipelines are a critical part of our, our infrastructure. And the administration started out by just canceling the Keystone XL pipeline uh, and, and killing that, which I saw as kind of a, an easy political win. Yeah, it's to, it's to, to, to his base, right? And, it, you know, he's got a AOC and yeah. Bernie and 
those folks need to be pacified a little bit at the at the start it was easy yeah. um you know that, that was my firmly believe that eventually the K kxl will get built i and i hope so because i think that it it was clearly need it, it was clearly necessary and, and important and just the fact that they kept having to find new ways to stop it meant how important i think it it actually is and um, but I do think that perhaps the Colonial Pipeline hack has reoriented the administration's look or, or attitude towards pipelines. And the, the Secretary of Energy said, I think in, in her conferences, like pipe is best. And that's a huge, I think, uh, reorientation from saying, we're just going to cancel this pipeline because it's going to give us a political win to pipelines are actually really important and critical parts of our infrastructure and we need to safely secure them. Uh, and it's not a far reach from there to say, okay, we need to make sure they're safe, that they're kept up well, that we build new pipelines as are, are needed and, and things like that. So I, I'm hoping that this is maybe, um, you know, kind of a, a dose of reality also for the administration that, um, you know, we need to, that, that these pipelines are, are critical and we need to not just safeguard them, but uh, make sure that they continue to be used. And I think um, they're going to run into a, what you mentioned, line five with um, Michigan. And, and that's a huge issue because the governor basically campaigned on this idea that pipelines are not safe and Enbridge is not safe, but transporting these products by rail car and truck is somehow safer. And that's just not true at all. And so um, I would hope that perhaps the colonial pipeline issue will raise the profile of pipelines when dealing with this and, and other issues, because transporting gasoline and, and other petroleum products and crude oil in rail cars and trucks is so much more dangerous for people, for the environment, for animals than using a pipeline. Well, I think that all of our, any of our listeners or those Americans that may not be familiar with it just need to Google Lac Megantic, L-A-C-M-E-G-A-N-T-I-C, and they'll see that you know, the tragedy that happened there because of crude oil in a rail car, uh, words can't express how bad that was. Um, and that brings me to a, a final point about the Colonial Pipeline here that I think that maybe people don't understand that's happened is the, the downstream part of the energy sector, that, that's the refining, taking oil and, and or natural gas to products and then to the ultimate buyer, um, you know, a lot of East Coast refineries have been mothballed and, um, you know, had there had some of those refineries still been in operation, then the, the slack that was created because of the Colonial Pipeline may not have happened. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, there was definitely some issues going on in the in the whole um, downstream ecosystem there. I mean, one of the things there was uh, there was actually another refinery outside of Philadelphia. It. it Basically, it produced only mostly jet fuel, but um, there was an explosion and it's basically not, it wasn't feasible to continue to operate the refinery. So that refinery was closed and um, there have been, you know, refinery issues, I think, throughout, throughout the year. We had plenty of gasoline being produced. Refineries were running, you know, pretty well. There were, there was plenty of gasoline, but there were other issues along the supply chain, especially a lack of truckers because there was, you know, gasoline was available, but if you can't get it through the pipeline, then there were actually a lack of, of, of truck drivers who either were laid off or went to other industries during the, um, 
early part of the pandemic when gasoline demand dropped and that industry hasn't come back yet. And so there are these, these breaks, I think, in the supply chain and people don't realize it until suddenly they can't fill up their car with gasoline. There are articles about how this summer they're concerned there may not just, just not be enough truckers to bring gasoline from the, the tank farms to the stations at the rate that people are consuming it. And so people aren't going to realize this until, oh, they can't fill up their car with gas when they just assume they could. And yet we know that these problems exist, but they're not going to end up getting fixed or there's no impetus to get them fixed until the, the consumer starts complaining about it. So it's, it's definitely an issue and refining has shifted a lot. Um, we're actually making um, less jet fuel than we used to, and we're sending more um, into plastics, um, which you know, you could say that that's actually a remarkable thing that our refineries were able to shift like that to, to match demand. And yet, are they going to be able to shift back when demand changes? And, well, that was um, my next question. Like, you know, I, the, the world's going to go back to work here. People are going to be allowed to travel. America's way ahead of the curve on vaccines and, and uh, getting back to work. And I, I see some problems in, uh, in supply demand structures here in the next year here. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think I definitely think that there is a potential for demand to outstrip supply at at some point. I think that um, OPEC is aware of this, and and even is is kind of expecting this. They're hoping that um, it will lead to a drawdown in some stored oil. Um, but I do think that we will see prices rising as a result. Um, I, I think though there, there is one aspect I'm, that I'm a little concerned that people have put too much into the, the vaccines. There's this idea that, you know, as people get vaccines, they're going to return to their previous patterns of consumption. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm not sure that we're seeing that. There's some, some interesting data that was talked about in a Wall Street Journal article that showed that people getting the vaccines aren't necessarily returning to their previous uh, consumption patterns. And I actually wrote about um, some of these issues, actually, it was almost about a year ago um, in Barron's, I, I said, in order to get back to um, our normal levels of, of consumption, you need to have three things happen. Um, you're gonna deal with you know, the virus, then you gotta deal with the fear that people have of the virus, and then you've gotta deal with the economic issues, you know, the, the recession and, and the dislocation in, in industry that's been caused. And I think that um, we're kind of stuck in between two and three. Uh, there's been a lot of stimulus money poured into the economy, but people are still scared. And I think a lot of people thought that vaccines were the thing that would make people not scared, and we're seeing that that's not entirely true. So while I think we will see a big jump in travel and demand this summer, particularly in the United States, it's not going to look like 2019 uh, because I think that people are still scared and there's not enough that's being done to overcome that fear. Well, that's great. Um, time will tell. And I think it's important that people understand that there is a it is a long way back and and we have an energy system that works pretty well right now that will, I think, through technology and, and uh, awareness of changes will look different going forward. Ellen, we thank you so much for participating today. Um, we'll do this again maybe in six months and see where we're at. And, and, that would uh, be fantastic. And I'd, I'd like to, you know, in, in our next episode, I, I'd like to explore more. We'll find out maybe six months from now what's happened with this EIA sorry, IEA, they're different, International Energy Agency versus the Energy 
Informa information, energy information administration, administration. In the Ameri which is an American lobbyist yeah. versus the International Energy Agency. And the, this, what I think is a, has been a watershed moment about investment in the future of the energy sector, especially with your expertise around the Middle East. And, you know, if you look at the, the, the IEA uh, report, they say, they say that the Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia, can pick up that excess demand quotient. Well, that's interesting that they all of a sudden, they, by the way, though, none of those countries are part of the IEA, um, that the IEA would structure the future based on countries that have human rights. I, I'm not going to get started here because the, <laughs> the, the effect of filling the extra barrel with a, a barrel from the Middle East versus a barrel from Canada or the United States is just absolutely ludicrous and folly to me. I can't understand the logic. Like, so it's I'll, also let against, you, I'll let you have the last word. You can just take it from there. Yeah, I was going to say, it's also against what the IEA was, was founded exactly. as. Remember, they were founded in 1974 to represent consuming nations' interests in opposition to OPEC, which represents producer, you know, this group of, of this cartel of, of producer countries. So it's, it's very odd that they're like, oh, well, don't worry, OPEC will take care of it. When has OPEC ever taken care of, of the consumer? OPEC takes care of OPEC and inside OPEC, it's, it's, a, it's a fraternicide as well every time. Like it, it's amazing that the cartel has lasted actually since the 60s, 1960, I think yeah. that, that they, they first started. I, it's a, very fascinating and I look forward to talking about it again. And I, before I ask you my last question, I, I'm currently reading uh, the Manchester biography of Winston Churchill between 1932 and 1940 when the yeah. British administration had their head in the sand about the Nazis and I I'm not going to go to into that type of a diatribe but um I'll ask you my question what are you reading these days uh, oh I um, love that question I love when people ask me what I'm reading so um I just finished a really excellent book um it's called Guest House for Young Widows Among the Women of Isis by uh, a woman named Azada Moaveni and it was a really fascinating look into what compelled women, uh, West young women, teenagers, some of them from the West, but others from, uh, you know, from from Tunisia, to basically go and join up in ISIS. Um, and fascinating. Kind of what happened to them, which was really fascinating. And then uh, an energy um, area. I uh, also recently read *The World for Sale*, which is a history of commodities trading by uh, Javier Blas and Jack Barchi, which was a really uh, interesting read. I, I look at Javier all the time. When I did my master's thesis, I, he, I quoted him exclusively a lot. He's got a very broad global view of the energy sector, a great uh, analyst. Ellen, thanks so much for joining us today. And, and thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find our network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give us a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like the episode and want to help us keep creating great content like this, you can support us by donating at cgaica slash support. It's real easy, folks. Just, just hit support. Thank you. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producers, Joe Kalnan and Charlotte Duvel-Lantoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cube.